0: States is yours, uh, Thank you very much. That's encouraging to be clapped before I've actually said uh, anything. Uh, thank you Vesa for that introduction. Uh, thank you to Susanna who's doing the translation in the booth for those of you who might want uh, the translation into Finnish. Uh, it's a delight to be with you and really encouraging to see Uh, an apologetics conference here that's taking an interdisciplinary, a multidisciplinary approach uh, to the subject of uh, the problem of evil. And uh, I hope uh, in the space that I have this evening uh, to give one, I think, significant contribution uh, to that discussion from the area of philosophy, uh, and particularly the area of natural philosophy, that is of arguments for the existence of God. Because, of course, the problem of evil uh, is raised within our culture as the primary reason for not believing in God. But I believe that it raises issues that, when you uh, pursue them carefully, actually lead us uh, towards belief in at least some kind of a God. So this is not a complete response or answer to the problem of evil by any means, but I think it is a significant part of the response that we can make. See, moral values are either objective, that is, facts that are independent of us, things that we discover about the world, or they are subjective, that is, they are not independent of us. They are, in other words, relative to us, the subject, and thus they are subjective. Uh, a view of value that's called Uh, relativism or subjectivism so moral values are either objective or merely subjective and Herbert McCabe notes that if you think that judgments of good and bad are all a matter of taste purely subjective or that it all depends on how you look at it then the answer to the problem of evil could simply be that from where God looks at it everything is fine and dandy and God has a taste for a little suffering here and there you think that makes him bad well that's just your taste in the matter see moral subjectivists might argue like this if the biblical God exists then he would be objectively good Um, There is no objective good or evil. Therefore, the biblical God does not exist. That's an interesting argument to engage with. But then if you make that argument, they must swallow moral subjectivism. And I think that's hard to do. And indeed... The person who advances such an argument against belief in God can't consistently claim to have any arguments for the truth of moral subjectivism or against God that objectively ought to convince us to to believe them. As Nietzsche put it in Beyond Good and Evil suppose we want truth why not rather untruth and uncertainty even ignorance why insist on truth I'd like to talk a little bit this evening about C.S. Lewis who of course went from uh, atheism to Christianity and we'll uh, mention a bit about him here and we'll come back to him later on c.s lewis spent his 19th birthday in the front lines of world war one before he was wounded during the battle of Arras. and uh, douglas gresham in his book jack's life uh, tells us that um, as lewis and his men advanced with bayonets at the ready the barrage of artillery shells stopped advancing and began to come back towards them Soon, Jack, as Lewis was known to his friends, Jack and his men were being bombarded by their own artillery from far behind them. And to his helpless fury, Jack watched his men being blown to pieces in the constant roar of their own artillery support. Suddenly, Jack saw a blinding light. Everything went completely silent. And then the ground came up slowly and hit him in the face. Jack had been hit by both the concussion and the shrapnel from a British shell. His trusted sergeant had been between Jack and the shell when it exploded and was blown to bits. For Lewis, evil was an objective fact. As he said, a real thing, a thing that is really there, not made up by ourselves. As an atheist, Lewis believed evil was something that any god worthy of the name would not permit. And hence the existence of evil justified his anti-theism. As Lewis explained in his book The Problem of Pain, if anyone had asked me, why do you not believe in God, my reply would have run something like this. If you ask me to believe that this universe is the work of a benevolent and omnipotent spirit, I reply that the evidence points in the opposite direction. Either there is no spirit behind the universe, or else a spirit indifferent to good and evil, or else an evil spirit. It's significant to note here that C.S. Lewis, as an atheist, saw that the problem of evil is not an argument for atheism. It is not an argument for a naturalistic or materialistic worldview. It is simply an argument against what some might call ethical monotheism, argument against belief in the kind of God that the Judeo-Christian tradition believes in. But it's an argument about what kind of God can you believe in, not an argument against belief in any kind of supernatural creator. It is widely believed, said Lewis, that scientific thought does put us in touch with reality, whereas moral or metaphysical thought does not. And on this view, when we say that the universe is a space-time continuum, we're saying something about reality. Whereas if we say that uh, men ought to have a living wage, we're only describing our own subjective feelings. But he saw that on this scientistic view, the world of facts without one trait of value and the world of feelings without one trait of truth or falsehood Justice or injustice confront one another, and no reproachment, no meeting is possible. As Nancy Piercy puts it in her brilliant book Saving Leonardo, the strict separation of facts from values is the key to unlocking the history of the modern Western mind. People have always known that there's a distinction between is and ought between what you are and what you should be between descriptive statements and normative statements in earlier ages however people thought that both types of statement dealt with questions of truth if you made a moral statement about what someone ought to do it was either true or false This fact-value divide has been maintained in three different ways in the West. Uh, The uh, positivistic idea that value propositions, claims about what's valuable, are simply meaningless. Secondly, the scientistic idea that value propositions are simply unknowable and third, the naturalistic claim that value propositions are simply false. Let's look at each of those in turn briefly. It was particularly the atheist uh, Oxford philosopher A.J. Ayer uh, in his book Language, Truth and Logic who popularised this kind of positivistic view uh, that uh, put forward a criterion of when language is meaningful. Uh, it was a view called logical positivism and it said that the meaning of any statement that wasn't simply true by definition like the statement two plus two equals four uh, lay in its ability to be empirically verified at least in principle so if I were to say um, the moon is made of cheese that might be a silly claim to make but it's a meaningful claim to make because at least in principle, you know, were I to find myself on the moon with a spoon, I would know what to do empirically to verify or falsify the truth of my claim. And so it's meaningful language. But according to Eyre, to say that God exists is to make a metaphysical utterance, which cannot be either true or false. If a proposition fails to satisfy the verification principle, and it's not just a tautology, true by definition, then it's metaphysical, and being metaphysical, it's neither true nor false, but literally senseless. This thinking dominated academic philosophy in the analytic philosophical world for a brief span of time. Because people started noticing that it seems we we do know things that do have meaning that don't fit the verification criteria. For example, John Hick pointed out that, for example, Christianity, since it makes predictions about the future, particularly predictions about the afterlife, the new heavens and the new earth. It does make empirically confirmable descriptions about the future. And so uh, a a religious or so-called metaphysical view that the positivists wanted to say was meaningless, according to their own criteria, actually was meaningful. And so they couldn't use this verification criteria to uh, put a wall between religious and scientific statements. Indeed, someone must have been the first to point out that the verification criteria doesn't fit the verification criteria and it is self-contradictory. Indeed, Eyre himself later in life admitted that he had been wrong. He said uh, in various interviews in the 1970s, I just stated the verification rule dogmatically and an extraordinary number of people seemed to be convinced But he thought that the verification principle is defective, he said nearly all of it was false, logical positivism died a long time ago, I don't think much of language, truth and logic is true, I think it's full of mistakes, he said. Um, So he came to think that he was wrong and, and good on him for admitting it. But you still see this kind of view being influential in today's culture through people like Today's Oxford academic, uh, Richard Dawkins, who says there is a non-overlapping and exhaustive distinction between ideas that are false or true about the real world, factual matters in the broad sense, and ideas about what we ought to do, normative or moral ideas, for which the words true and false have no meaning. Richard Dawkins obviously didn't get the note from A.J. Eyre. The the theory of knowledge of scientism turned the, the positivist criteria of the meaning of language into a criteria of knowing about the facts of reality. As the atheist Alex Rosenberg puts it, scientism is the conviction that the methods of science are the only reliable way to secure knowledge of anything. So we've moved on from the talking about whether claims are meaningful to whether or not we can know that they're true or false. And being scientistic just means treating science as our exclusive guide to reality, says Rosenberg. We trust science as the only way to acquire knowledge. Another British academic, Peter Atkins, says in his book On Being, I stand by my claim that the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality, the only way of acquiring reliable knowledge. But of course, science doesn't do ethics. Scientific theories describe physical reality and can sometimes predict things about physical reality. But ethics is about prescribing It's about obligating our behaviour in the future and so on. So, as the pictures indicate, science will tell me how much poison do I have to put in the martini that I'm about to give my rich aunt Mabel in order to guarantee that I will inherit her country estate in the near future. But science cannot tell me whether giving her the poisoned martini is a good thing to do or a bad thing to do, something I should do, something I should not do. So, scientism as a theory of knowledge leads automatically to moral skepticism. If, premise one, science is the only way to know anything, well, premise two, science can't provide any ethical knowledge from which it follows that therefore we can't have any ethical knowledge. But again there are problems with this view. The scientific demand that every rational belief in order to count as rational must be justified by empirical scientific evidence is self-contradictory because that claim about how we know things can't be justified by evidence. There is no scientific experiment you can do to prove that you can only know things by doing scientific experiments. Indeed, that claim entails an infinite regress that can't be satisfied. If my belief in a uh, proposition A is never reasonable unless I've got B, evidence in support of A, Well, then my belief that B is real and really does support the truth of A would not be rational unless I had C that supported the truth of B. But then my belief in C would not be rational unless I had D. And so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. And where does it stop? Nowhere. Indeed, it should be obvious, I think, that there are... Just obvious counterexamples to the scientific definition of how we know things. For example, I think we know that we know certain moral truths. We know that it is objectively wrong to torture small children just for fun. We know that. We know that rainbows are beautiful and that most car parks are ugly. We know that the physical world has an objective existence outside of our minds. We know that the logical law of non-contradiction is true. So indeed you will see there are many things that we have to know in order to do science that science itself cannot tell us to be true. As C.S. Lewis put it, You cannot produce rational intuition by argument because argument depends upon rational intuition. Proof, in that sense, rests upon the unprovable which just has to be seen by rational intuition. Some atheists get this. This is The new atheist writer Sam Harris. And he says that intuition is the most basic part of our uh, ways of understanding reality. He says, while this is true in matters of ethics, it is no less true in science. The traditional opposition between reason and intuition is a false one. Reason is itself intuitive to the core. Any judgment that a proposition is reasonable or logical relies on intuition to find its feet I absolutely agree with him he is spot on atheists are not wrong about everything (laughs) unfortunately in Sam Harris's book The Moral Landscape subtitled How Science Can Determine Human Values which purports to show how a scientific epistemology can justify a belief in objective values and I'm glad he's trying to justify belief in objective values, but I think he fails to do it using that kind of scientific approach. And indeed, he knows he fails to do it, and he explicitly tells us that he fails to do it. On page uh, 37 of the uh, hardback edition here, he says this. Science cannot tell us why scientifically we should value value well-being of sentient creatures the demand for radical justification leveled by the moral skeptic could not be met by science science is defined with reference to the goal of understanding the processes at work in the universe can we justify this goal scientifically of course not what evidence could prove that we should value evidence You just have to have the rational intuition that it's true that you should value evidence. And then you can go and be happy doing science. But science can't justify that moral intuition for you. And Sam Harris himself tells us so. So back to Lewis. So as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was senseless from A to Z, so to speak. Why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction to it? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private, subjective idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. for the argument against God depended on saying that the world was really unjust not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies thus in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist in other words that the whole of reality was senseless I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense, and consequently atheism turns out to be too simple. In his brilliant essay on living in the atomic age, Lewis said, if nature, the space, time, matter system, is the only thing in existence, then of course there can be no other source for our moral standards. They must, like everything else, be the unintended and meaningless outcome of blind forces. If you wanted to turn that into an argument, proposition by proposition, it might go like this. One, if naturalism is true then nothing is objectively evil. But two, something is objectively evil, from which it follows that, three, therefore, naturalism is false. Recently, Ronald Dworkin um, died, he's an American uh, legal philosopher, um, in his last book, Called Religion uh, Without God. He talks about this dilemma of value within a materialistic worldview. And he says that um, atheists, he thinks, should really divorce themselves from a naturalistic worldview. To be an atheist without being a naturalist. Because he says the, the religious attitude re- rejects the very popular metaphysical theory that nothing exists that is neither matter nor mind, whatever that is. That there is really fundamentally no such thing as a good life or cruelty or beauty. He sees that that seems to be implied by a materialistic worldview. And yet he says later on in the book, we find much in the natural world beautiful. To a naturalist, this beauty is just a matter of our reactions to these sites. The pleasure we take in them. To the religious attitude, they are discoveries of innate beauty. You see the tension. And then he says, still... We know that the sunset is beautiful. And you see what follows from that. That even uh, Ronald Dworkin, in recognising the beauty of a sunset, is arguing that that means rejecting a naturalistic worldview. Lewis, again, in his essay De Futilitate, The defiance of the good atheist hurled at an apparently ruthless and idiotic cosmos is really an unconscious homage to something in or behind that cosmos that he recognises as infinitely valuable and authoritative. For if mercy and justice were really only private whims of his own, he could not go on being indignant like Stephen Fry. The fact that he arraigns heaven itself for disregarding those values means that at some level of his mind, he knows that enthroned in a higher heaven still are these objective values. In other words, moving on from an argument against a naturalistic worldview, here is an argument for a supernatural worldview. If a holy, good, personal God does not exist then objective moral values can't exist. But objective moral values do exist, from which, of course, it follows that a good personal God exists. Now, this argument is much misunderstood, and sometimes, I think, rather deliberately misunderstood, particularly by new atheist writers. Paul Copan cautions us, belief in God isn't a requirement for being moral. And if you raise the moral argument, very often atheists will come back with an indignant reply of, you know, how dare you claim that atheists can't be nice, good people without believing in God? Well, I'm not claiming that. Belief in God isn't a requirement for being moral, but the existence of a personal God is crucial for a coherent understanding of objective morality. This is an issue of meta-ethics, not normative ethics of of moral ontology of moral being not moral epistemology or simply moral knowledge as Paul puts it in Romans 2 when Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature things required by the law they're a law for themselves since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts you don't have to believe in God or the Bible or whatever in order to sometimes know and do the right thing. The question is, how come there is such a thing as the right thing to be known and to be done? So the moral argument doesn't argue for everything we believe about the nature of God, but it does argue for a significant slice of what we mean as Christians by God. It's a short easily grasped argument it's a deductive argument it has that logical power it's grounded in universal daily human moral experience it's not some sort of abstract argument where you need to teach people lots of science in order to get the argument off the ground if you're doing cosmological arguments or the design argument or whatever and both premises of the argument as i'll show are defended by atheists this is an interesting way of presenting an argument for God to defend it by only quoting from atheists. So premise one. If God does not exist, objective moral values don't exist. Why believe that? Well what is an objective moral fact? It's a it's a moral ideal. It's something that prescribes not, not merely descriptive. And it's something that in our experience we meet that obligates our behaviour. But an idea or a character to live up to implies surely a mind or a character. Prescription or a commandment, if you like, requires a prescriber, a commander. An obligation requires someone to whom one is rightfully obligated. As the atheist A.C. Grayling says, talking about Nietzsche again, Nietzsche exposed the problem atheism has with morality. It's not that atheists can't be moral. The question is which morality an atheist should serve. When monotheism has been left behind, morality can't go on before Um, i haven't got time to go into nietzsche's famous parable of the madman but i suggest you look up uh, google uh, nietzsche's parable of the madman nietzsche himself said when one gives up the christian faith one pulls the right to christian morality out from under one's feet christianity is a system a whole view of things thought out together by breaking one main concept out of it the faith in god One breaks the whole. It stands or falls, that is morality, stands or falls with faith in God. The atheist Jean-Paul Sartre said that existentialists find it extremely disturbing that God no longer exists. For along with his disappearance goes the possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven. There would no longer be any a priori good, any good that's just there since there'd be no infinite and perfect consciousness to conceive of it, to contain the ideal of right. Richard Dawkins says, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design. That is, no creator, no God. It's a universe with no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. No evil, no good following from no creator. Atheist Julian Bugini says, if there is no single moral authority, i.e. no God, we have to, in some sense, create values for ourselves. And that means that moral claims are not true or false. You may disagree with me, but you can't say that I have made a factual error when we have a moral disagreement. The atheist J.L. Mackey said that if there are objective values, they make the existence of a God more probable than it would have been without them. Thus, we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of God. But remember, Mackey is an atheist, so what does he do with that insight He suggests we all become moral subjectivists. He says, if we adopted instead a subjectivist account of morality, this problem would not arise. And he famously wrote a book called Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong. But here's my question to Mackie. Which is really the greater problem that arises Having to believe in a god or having to swallow moral subjectivism. In his recent book *Atheism: What Everyone Needs to Know*, uh, the American atheist philosopher Michael Ruse says this: Whatever else morality might be, it is not just an emotion or a preference. Stomping on little babies for fun is wrong even if the whole world thinks otherwise. The question then is, where does the objectivity of morality lie? So there are plenty of atheist philosophers today who argue, and I think do a good job of arguing, for the objectivity of moral value. The problem such atheists face is accounting for the existence of the moral value they recognise. Roos goes on natural solutions don't seem to be the answer. Non natural, say Platonistic kind of supernatural explanations, also he says, don't seem to be the answer. Is God the default position? He asks. He says the objectivity of morality is an illusion. Now, hang on a minute, he's just argued, I think very convincingly, that we have to recognise that moral values are objective. And he's now saying the objectivity of morality is an illusion. What he's now saying is, uh, no, forget that, actually, morals are subjective. He's doing a J.L. Mackey. Morality is an illusion put in place by our genes to keep us social, Behaving, thinking that there is objective moral values was useful to our survival as a species in the past and thus we end up with that belief. Except for him who has seen through that belief because he now knows that that's wrong. He says, this is the world of non-belief. And such are the consequences. If you want to hold on to atheism, you have to give up belief in objective moral values. In other words, you have to be prepared to say, stomping on little children for fun is not, objectively speaking, wrong. Which is the greater problem? Saying that, or saying, okay, there is a good God believing that God exists or believing moral subjectivism that's the dilemma and it's the one that that Lewis saw so premise two of the moral argument is that objective moral values really do exist and as I say plenty of atheists argue this and recognise this kai nielsen said that moral truisms are as available to me or to any atheist as they are to the believer in god you can be confident of the truth of these moral utterances of course there are difficult cases there are are moral issues over which people of good intent of informed opinion and so on disagree but that doesn't take away from the fact that there are clear cases and kai nielsen said These clear cases are more justified than any sceptical philosophical theory that would lead you to question them. British atheist Peter Cave says, whatever sceptical arguments may be brought against our belief that killing the innocent is morally wrong, we are more certain that the killing is morally wrong than that the argument for subjectivism is sound. Torturing an innocent child for sheer fun, this is the kind of extreme example philosophers like using because it really brings the point home torturing an innocent child for sheer fun of it is morally wrong full stop Amen Ross Schaefer-Landau another atheist who wrote a very good book uh, called um, Whatever Happened uh, to Good and Evil said some moral views are better than others despite the sincerity of the individuals or cultures and societies that endorse them Some moral views are true, others false, and my thinking them doesn't make them so. Individuals and whole societies can be seriously mistaken when it comes to morality. The best explanation of this is that there are moral standards not of our own making. So as the Welsh philosopher H.P. Owen put it, on the one hand... Objective moral claims transcend, go beyond, every human person, every culture. On the other hand, it is contradictory to assert that impersonal claims are entitled to the allegiance of our wills. I can't be objectively morally obligated by my evolutionary history if all that is, is a material, unintended process. So Owen argued, the only solution to this paradox is to suppose that the order of objective moral claims that transcends us and our cultures is in fact rooted in the personality of God, in the personality of someone who transcends individual human beings and our cultures but who, because he's personal, can obligate our behavior. I've only time to look at one major objection to the moral argument. Probably the the most used objection comes uh, from one of Plato's dialogues called the Euthyphro, in which, talking in the context of polytheism, Socrates asked, uh, is what is holy, what is right, Is it holy because the gods approve it? Or do they approve it because it is holy? Contemporary philosophers have taken this question to pose a dilemma for rooting morality in God. On the one hand, are God's moral commands arbitrary if things are right and wrong just because God says so? Well, then that makes morality arbitrary because, presumably, God could say, um, rape, I think that's a jolly good idea. Everybody should rape each other. Extreme example. But on that account of morality, if if just because he says it, it becomes true, then that would mean that that thing would become the right thing to do. And that seems intuitively obviously wrong. (laughs) So are God's commands simply arbitrary and then we're back really with moral subjectivity but just it all depending on the guy with the biggest stick to beat us with if we don't toe the line, as it were, or is there some real objective standard of goodness that's independent of God's commanding or prohibiting things? to which his commands, to which God's commands must conform in order to be good. But since we either ground morality in God's commanding things or not, if we ground them in God's commands, morality becomes arbitrary and subjective. But if we don't ground morality in God's commands, then morality must be independent of And here's where the ambiguity comes in. Independent of God. That's what the atheist says. But no, what actually follows, of course, is independent of God's commanding it. Not necessarily independent of God. And there is a distinction between God's commands and God. God is more than a set of commands. The objection equivocates between independent of God's commands and independent of God, because moral value can be independent of God's commands without being independent of God. it can be part and parcel of his character, of the divine nature. In Plato's terms, we could say God is the good and yes he issues commands to us in line with the good but those commands are reflecting his own necessary essential unchanging character of goodness so there is the the moral argument if god doesn't exist objective moral values don't exist that objective moral values do exist including when we point to things and say that's evil just as much as when we point to something and say that's good but it follows from that that therefore God at least of the, the kind sufficient and necessary to explain the existence of objective moral values must exist thank you very much